Before you dive in, I wanted to let you know that we had a couple connection issues during this episode. Fixed it around the 25-minute mark, but anyways, just wanted to give you a heads up. Hope you enjoy. All right, so we're back with part two of what we'll call humanizing war, maybe. we got to put a name on this one. Um, I'm Preston Stewart, and John Wagner is back again. John, thanks for being here, man. Absolutely. Thanks for having me. So this was really fun last time. We just, as kind of a recap, we had talked a few weeks ago about some interpreter issues in Afghanistan, and there was some feedback from that episode that maybe it'd be worth talking more about experiences at West Point and the Army and Afghanistan to kind of humanize the conflict. And I, I don't know, it's, it's, is it, maybe it's a good time for this because I mean, today it's, we're recording on August 13th and like every day there's more cities falling to the Taliban. So I see the question all over social media of was it worth it and was it a waste and all this stuff. And I don't know that we'll necessarily get into that. Um, but it seems like a good time to talk about it. Remember some of the times, the good, the bad, and the funny, I guess. Yeah, I mean, it's been over 10 years since we were there, uh, our first time. And it's interesting how much a lot has changed and a lot has not changed. And it's definitely a tragedy, what you mentioned, what's going on right now. Um, but yeah, let's focus on kind of the good the good or the just the stories from our perspective from when we were there because I think this that's just something that people don't know. So we left off last time starting to get into actually leaving on the deployment. This was in June of 2010 and um, we're going to try to hit on a couple things that maybe just aren't as well known um, if somebody's not in the military or if they don't have maybe a close family member that's in the military. So we we all took off from our battalion 2502 infantry and the brigade, second brigade combat team, the 101st Airborne, all left from Fort Campbell within a few weeks of each other for the most part. We didn't talk about how you get to Afghanistan. So we jumped on a commercial, I guess chartered is probably the right term. Yeah, chartered. Yeah, there's no other passengers. It was just us. Any chance you remember? Was it oh, Omni? Was it Omni? Omni no, Air? Yeah. Oh, <laughs> that's coming to mind, but I don't know if that... Anyways, it's, the, it's a type of charter service that you've probably never heard of. I don't know. I'd never heard of it. Um, never seen it anywhere before. And you get on a commercial aircraft with a backpack and your weapon, right? Wasn't that what you carried on? Yep. Yeah, it's a weird feeling. Um, and for us, it was just an M4. Uh, I think some people might have had a sidearm. But, but for some of the soldiers, they're, they're rocking like a a semi or a, a saw, a two four nine saw or a two forty Bravo on an airplane, which is very strange sensation, dude, and uncomfortable. So one of these little, <laughs> yeah. there's no extra space on Omni Air. It's no. the government. The government didn't go all out in this contract, if you will. Um, <laughs> it is your standard run of the mill. I don't know. I don't know planes. Big plane, right? It was like four, six, four kind of seats, like just huge aircraft, right? But think about that next time you get on a plane. Every single rucksack was, every single backpack was a little bit bigger than you'd be permitted to carry on on American Airlines. Yeah, it was stuffed as full as can be, very heavy, and yeah, not not a good situation. Like one in three might fit in the overhead compartment. Zero out of a hundred fit underneath the seat in front of you and you had your weapon with you that it, you know even the m4 that collapses down a little bit you have to put that somewhere there's not a good place for it i think we consolidated those in some of the overhead compartments which sounds weird that there were just a bunch of weapons stacked overhead but um yeah there's your yeah flight and that's that's the first flight what was that i know for us we flew from fort campbell i think out to the out to somewhere in Connecticut. Oh yeah, but we didn't get off, did we? Yes, I know we we got off for a little bit because I remember getting back onto the plane, and it was really cool. There was, um, and I think we're on different planes, so so you might not have had this, but uh, there was a group of, of like uh, bikers, probably, or just a group of Americans that knew that we were on these flights 
overseas and they all they gathered it was at night and they they gathered at the hangar waiting for us to like walk from this little hangar back to get on the plane to go across the Atlantic and they formed this like tunnel with American flags and they were high-fiving us and kind of giving us this cool send-off and it was all volunteers we didn't know any of them Uh, it was it was really moving you know to to kind of walk through that and just to feel that support as you're leaving I really appreciate the uh the people that organize things like that because it it means something to to have that kind of send off we were definitely not on the same flight I feel like there's a lot of little (laughs) details I'll forget but a walkway of American flags I feel like that would have that probably would have a spot in memory but right um (laughs) So from there, generally, you go somewhere overseas. I think a lot of folks go through Shannon in Ireland. Um, mm-hmm. I, I don't know why. I don't know the reasons for that. But um, stop there. Then to, I had, John and I had it up here a minute ago. I got it wrong the first time. He got it right. Kyrgyzstan. Yeah, Kyrgyzstan. Uh, and it'd be hard to, I mean, I'd be challenged to point to it on a map. It's somewhere north of Afghanistan, kind of near Russia. And we have some sort of agreement there. And there's like a little U.S. base with an airfield. And I think we, I know we stayed there for a few days, at, at least a day. Because I remember uh, getting a little um, tent for each platoon, I think. And we had some formations and there was a gym. Uh, and it was one of those kind of odd sensations where you just want to get moving but you're kind of stuck here waiting for the next flight and again as a new second lieutenant that doesn't know anything I was for me personally I was just trying to trying to prove myself somehow but you can't prove yourself when you're all just sitting around a base uh so I just remember trying to get to know people getting to know the guys in my unit my fire support team uh, and then just trying to, to I don't know, pick up as much of the you know, norms that I could, because, you know, it's a new unit, a new job. You're trying to figure out what the culture is and, and how, how to fit into your role and what your role is supposed to be. So it's kind of in a weird spot. You're living with these people that you just met and you're in a new spot and just want to fly to the next stage just to get it over with. <laughs> Manus, I remember being like, so wherever anybody stopped, whether it was in Connecticut or Germany or, or Ireland, for the most part, at least the couple times I went back and forth, you had some kind of layover, but it was like an hour. It was like enough for the crew to change out or something. Like you could kind of get up, walk off the plane, maybe buy a drink. I know some people were allowed to drink alcohol. I don't think I was ever on a deployment where you could drink alcohol, but get a couple sodas, get some chips, whatever, um, and then get back on the plane. But then you get to Manus and it's like a still kind of feels like a layover because you're just there mm-hmm. for a few days you're sleeping just in a giant tent with a bunch of dudes you have like a bed for 72 hours your sleep's all messed up because you've probably flown like through two nights at this point or something weird um i remember getting yeah. madness trying to get food and it was like three in the morning you know and, and yeah like there's yeah a lot of yeah, jet lag yeah you lose track of what day it is um actually a good I remember watching the Blackhawks win the Stanley Cup in Manus for some reason. So if we can look up when the Hawks won the Stanley Cup, I think, I don't know. But anyways, <laughs> yeah, a couple of days in Manus. And then from Manus is where you get on the military aircraft for the first time, that's right. at least for us. I think that's how a lot of people got in and out of these countries. Um, I couldn't tell you what the aircraft was. Um, not, not an Air Force guy. I don't know which one. It was a big one. Um, but we had to load up all the equipment in the back of the aircraft and then you pile in. And if you thought the Omni flights were uncomfortable, then you get in a military aircraft for, I don't know, what was that like three, four or five hours? Do you have any idea? Yeah, it, it was, it was more than four hours, I think. And it was, um, it was interesting because it's, it's a cargo aircraft, probably a C-17. Um, but the, the racks where they fit the cargo, normally there's, they have like big, pallets to hold like a tank or something but uh these these racks were just full of uh air 
airplane seats essentially that were just right on top of each other. Uh, there was no space between them, and there's there were like 20 wide. So you know, <laughs> middle seat, you're you're almost all in a middle seat, and and the really tall people were just begging for those the rows, or or, or there's also people sitting on the side of the aircraft yeah. that are facing in. And those were kind of the luxury seats because you could kind of stretch your legs completely. But most of us were just packed in like sardines on this on this big rack of chairs. So think a commercial flight, um, the economy class, and take away like six inches of knee space. Like right. I remember getting in there and just thinking like, so we're not moving. Right. There's no getting out of here. Like until everybody in this row gets up, then I have a chance of moving. Right. Yeah. No, no restroom. That's not going to happen. You're, you're just stuck. And then you have your, your pack on your, on your lap as well. Cause there's nowhere else to put it. There's no overhead or anything. So it, it is, that is not a fun flight. I think we flew in kit. I think we had an IBA on or body armor on too. Yeah. Just yeah, add to so. it. Just like, there's not enough room. So just throw a little more stuff on sweat the whole <laughs> way there. I, the only thing I remember about getting to, it's funny how these things that should be like these really big events end up getting overshadowed and like now they're just kind of blurs, but my initial time at can we flew into Kandahar airfield or at least the destination was Kandahar airfield in, in Southern Afghanistan. And I remember getting off the plane and it was hot. It was probably mid afternoon and just like, whoa, like the heat hits you fast and then you're gone. It's get it. Like you just, there's just a process. It's a machine that's moving to get people in and out of country. And like, you just didn't have time to think next thing, you know, you like have a bed and they're pointing you to where chow is and be here tomorrow at three in the morning or whatever. I mean, it was just like a blur. Right. It was, yeah, it's interesting because there's so many of us and there's a lot of people in these leadership positions, but at this stage, we're all just a mass of people that are just being moved into different locations just to get us to our final you know fighting location and we're all treated the same which is great that's how it's supposed to be but but yeah it's an interesting little situation the um they put you in these buses i don't know what they i don't know what you call them um but i what comes to mind is like buses you see in india I don't know. They're like, how would you describe those, John? You know what I'm talking about? Yeah, I do. Now you say, yeah, it's they're just like a jalopy, <laughs> like a vehicle that you can just fit a ton of people into. But there's it's nothing, like a car chassis or something, right? It, like it looks like a car, but somehow it's a bus and right. There's nothing safe about it. No, it's just a people transporter. And they had them all over Kandahar Airfield or CAF, so it's called CAF. And I remember we got in one of those and somebody at some point said, be careful. We're going to drive by the poo pond and didn't really know what that was, you know, chalk that up as another thing that like nobody said anything about, but the poo pond is, and we did, we drove past it. And I remember thinking like, I was going to, I thought my first like real nervous moment in Afghanistan was that I was going to throw up on that bus in front of my soldiers simply because we drove past this poo pond, like that smell. I don't know how close you ever got to that thing, but it was an above ground <laughs> what would you call it above ground septic pool or something? I mean, it is what it sounds like. That yeah, was, it was enormous too. It was, it was like a lake. Disgusting. You can see it on, on Google earth. I think you can zoom in and see it. I think it has, I think it has a rating on Google earth. Oh, God. reviews. Yeah. Let me see if I can find that. <laughs> um, yeah, that was, that was terrible. And, and, and it seemed like you had to walk you had to walk past it almost almost everywhere you went. It seemed like you had to walk past it. And, and that was probably intentional. They probably put the temporary people in the tents right next to the poo pond because the people that lived at CAF were not going to live near that thing. Yeah, the poo pond has 4.7 stars, 320 reviews on Google. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. It affected a lot of people. So... <laughs> This was a time period in 2010 where uh, Kandahar Airfield was getting hit a lot by rockets. And so there's bunkers all over the place, just kind of concrete structures. So if you're out and about, you can always duck 
I don't know. I felt like there was probably always one within a one or 200 meters, right? You could always find some bunker to get inside. And I don't know. It, it's, yeah. I never heard one go off. We heard that uh, siren go off. I think every day we were there probably a couple times. And I remember the first time we heard that go off inside the building that we were staying in for a few days and everybody was like laying down on the floor, like getting up against the walls, like, this could be it. This could be the time the rocket hits. And, and they were legitimate rockets that the Taliban had put these 107 rockets, 107 millimeter rockets and fire them at the airfield because it was so big and they were really inaccurate, but the airfield was huge. So they could hit something. Um, I mean, they've, they've killed people doing that, but yeah, laying on the floor in the nasty RSOI buildings. Little different. Yeah. Yeah. And that, that, uh, it's interesting because there's a lot of people that will like, that's, that's their worst story, you know, that is being in calf and hearing the sirens go off, but that's kind of the extent of it. Um, which is good for the most part, you know, and it's t- totally awful if someone gets hit, but for, you know, 99.99% of the people there, you, you don't even see or hear the round. Cause there's, there's some, there's a decent amount of empty space. It's an airfield. So it's, it's unlikely that the, the round is going to hit anything. Yeah. I mean, I think I'm looking at a map. It's like four miles long by two or three miles wide. Like it's a big space, right? Yeah. Um, anyways, I remember hiding from the rockets, if that's the right way to put it, um, which it is kind of scary for the first time. Like you don't know where that thing is going to hit. And, and of course the first time it goes off, all I can think is like, this is going to be it been in Afghanistan for four hours. I'm going to die from a rocket attack. Um, but instead I just never even heard them detonate. But then when we were coming home or when we were there on leave, those sirens would go off and people would be like, Oh, now's the time to go get chow. Like everybody's going to be in a bunker, you know, go. Um, it was like the exact opposite mentality of like, those things aren't going to hit us. <laughs> um, anyways, life at Kandahar airfield. We yeah, weren't there. We're just- Go ahead. Oh, yeah, I was just going to say it's um, – sorry, you, you cut out there for a sec. I think we have a bad connection. I'm sorry. Oh, good. I can hear you now. Okay. Um, yeah, I was just going to say it's it, – it, I lost my train of thought. <laughs> Not hiding from the rockets later on. Yeah, so it's it's a terrible thing to do because you could get hurt, but it's uh, it's natural because you at the end you've seen you know you've you've been close to rockets you you know thinking back to what calf is like you're like those aren't gonna hit us so then it, it's it's a natural thing to be like all right now I can go get Chow this this is the time. Now we weren't there very long. I don't remember if it was two days or five days, but it was probably, I think it was less than a week for just about everybody. Um, but then we started heading out West to where everybody was going to be located. And, and our brigade was based out of a place called um, Fob Wilson forward operating base, Wilson in Zari district. Um, that's kind of West Southwest of Kandahar city. Um, the battalion two five Oh two is going to be based out of a place called housing Madad. Um, Again, FOB, Forward Operating Base, Housing Madad. And then there were all sorts of little combat outposts, cops, and outposts scattered throughout the battle space. Um, and just kind of one at a time, companies started going out there. And there was a unit there. And the way this works on a deployment is you go out and you start transitioning with that unit. And they slowly leave as you slowly come in. And at some point, you blink and you're the only ones there. But the picture that we used for the screen or for the thumbnail of the last episode, I think Wags was, it was the night one of us left. And I have a feeling that you went out before I did. Yeah. Yeah. I think because uh, my company charger company was going out to a, a outpost furthest away from the battalion outpost. So they, they wanted us to get there soon because there was a company there that we needed to transition with. Uh, so yeah, I think, I think I was the, 
the first of the two of us to go. Yeah, and, and that picture was funny because we both look uh, lost and confused and scared because that, that's how we felt. I know that's how I felt. Because uh, oh, yeah, it, that was that was really the moment. Like we're going like the the stories that were being told to us before we left about you know touching down in the helicopter, expecting to take rounds and to, to take small arms fire as you're landing. This is when it was supposed to happen. So yeah, there was there was some uh, appreciation there. You know, it was weird. So when I was in the National Guard, we were preparing, uh, the unit was preparing to go on a deployment and they sent back pictures of the base. They said, this is where you're going to sleep. And this is the airfield. And this is the chow hall. And like, before you even got there, you could paint this picture in your mind pretty easily. of Like, this is exactly what it's going to look like. I don't know about you. I had zero of that for housing Madad. No, cause I think they were expanding it. Uh, cause it was, it was under a lot of construction, uh, as we arrived. And, and I think there was already a base there, so it wasn't brand new, but it, I think they were making it into a big base because they expected it to be like the center of operations. So there was all, all these HESCO barriers going up. There was construction vehicles around. They're making these this large areas to house the Afghan army that was supposed to arrive. Uh, so it was, I, I remember being a big empty space. It, it, and if I can dive into it, there, I remember when we arrived, so we, uh, uh, helicopter lands and it's, it's of course nighttime because, uh, we're only flying at night just to utilize the cover of darkness. Uh, so we land at night, but we have our night vision on, uh, it's a small group of us. And again, I'm, I still don't really understand how things are supposed to work. And I, I remember our, uh, our commander, Captain Necessary was with us and, and you know we're all kind of nervous and, and he was too and he he wants us to do like a little quick formation to make sure everyone's there so he he says fall in and we're all supposed to line up and like first sergeant's supposed to get a count of us and again there's like 15 of us uh but that was too disoriented and confused like the second it is and i was like out next to him like outside of the formation and he looked at me and he's like what are you doing? And I, I kind of like came through and had to like jump in line. <laughs> it was a very uh, rookie move on my part. Yeah. So you load up the aircraft Kandahar airfield. You've been waiting for however long you've got all your, you're always carrying like more stuff than you probably should. Right. Like it, everything's heavier. And, and I, I, I was carrying a, a laptop, a box full of like the secret laptops or something like the hard drives, like something like, Oh, you have a free hand, you know, here's 50 pounds. So like there's always something you're always carrying more than you probably should. Um, you're right. We're flying at night and don't know what we're flying into. And our pilots did a test fire in the air. I remember thinking like, here we go. But no, it's just a test fire. Once they got out of Kandahar airfield. Um, but then when we landed at Housie, yeah. same thing. Yeah. Yeah. They got her in back. Just, just get a few rounds off. We landed at Housie pitch black. Um, and there's no lights intentionally. These, these outposts in Afghanistan don't have, uh, don't have lights on it. You don't want to light up the target in the middle of the night. So everything's dark. So you get off and there's just like one little red lens and then you got to follow it. And they took us to some tent um, for us to sleep in. And when the sun came up, I had no idea where I was, right? Like just zero wrecking. Like it was so dark in a new area that I had no idea what it looked like. It was like a new world when the sun came up. I had no idea what to expect. Yeah. Yeah. That was, that was shocking. Um, but, you know, just for a little context that they had these nice, really nice tents that we would all live in. And, and I really learned to appreciate uh, the, the makers back home of these tents uh, because you're in this dark area and you're probably expecting just to sleep under a, a tarp or something but then then this door and it's like for a split second while the door's open there's a ton of light and you walk into this tent and it's like you're in a an american home almost i mean it's, it's just it's, it's a tent but it's it's very nice it's well lit it's air conditioned it's got it's got all that you didn't realize that you needed yeah those tents were 
were high end. I mean, I don't want to give the wrong impression. They weren't they weren't luxury tents. They they weren't. It wasn't like we were in a mansion. But uh, when you're told that you're going to be roughing it for the next year, and you open up this tent that's that's brand new, well built. There's air conditioning. Uh, it's it's a nice surprise. There's good light in there. It, it feels like home pretty quick. I wish I could do air conditioning with like air quotes because we had an air conditioning unit set up, but every day we slept in that tent, we woke up in the morning to um, just baking because the AC would over, it would uh, is overheat the word. It was working too hard and it would just shut down Yeah, and uh, nobody would notice or I don't know. I, I just remember waking up like every morning for quite a while until we moved out of those tents, just soaked in sweat and then you try to get it going again it would take forever but it was something yeah i think part of it was that they let us have control over the temperature which is probably a mistake so people are trying to crank it as low as possible and it yeah it, <laughs> it uh overruns the compressor and then we're yeah we're waking up sweating so i remember our first morning there we woke up um started to wake i mean i think we probably went to sleep at like what, two, three, four in the morning, something crazy like that. Right. So even when the, the AC stopped working, people were still just dealing with it until we started to hear our first firefight kickoff. Um, I don't know what day it was. I, I, I have notes from all this. I could go back and, and call that out, but essentially there was a fight on highway one and they, the unit that was there had a couple strikers get into it and then had Apaches come on station and they started getting into it. And it was this like, oh, that's right there. I mean, there's those HESCO barriers around the base, but like it was very clear that there was a fight about, I don't know, 600 meters away. Welcome yeah, because yeah, Hazmi Dad, yeah, Dad was right on uh, the highway, basically. And it, we say highway because most roads are just dirt roads, but Highway 1 is a paved road and it's just two lanes, but it's it's the ring route. It goes all the way around uh, Afghanistan. So it's, it's a major road. Um, and Hazmadad was right, uh, almost touching the road. And our, our tents, I remember, were, were just beyond the HESCO barrier. So yeah, we, we were within 100 meters of the road. And just on the other side of the road, just south of Hazmadad, yeah, is where there was just a collection of Taliban that would that would start fights like you said almost every morning like it was a, a ritual and i don't fully understand the intent uh, but yeah it was it was an interesting way to be welcomed into housing my dad i remember thinking how weird it was like the first taste of this is what deployments are like because you can watch movies and read books and all these different things but the unit that we are replacing is still in the fight it's a probably, we'll call it a platoon of strikers, maybe. Um, yeah, and they were spread thin. Yeah, it, it, we were a whole battalion going to house my dad. They probably had a, yeah, like you said, a platoon there. And I know there was just a platoon plus a Terminator where I was going. And, and they, were, they were spread around the whole battle space that we, that we fit several units into, several battalions, I think. Yeah, but this this morning, I remember thinking like it was this helpless isn't the right way to put it, but it's weird to hear this fight going on for the first time ever and realize like your job is to do nothing is to like at all. You're not needed. Yeah. Just stay out of the way. Like it wasn't it wasn't a fair fight as you know, we never really won a fair fight, but it was probably two to five Taliban firing small arms they're getting shot at with Mark 19 grenade launchers, 50 cals, and then um, Apaches come on station, age 64. It's like, it wasn't a fair fight. The Americans weren't even, it, I mean, there was no concern that the Americans needed additional help. We didn't even know where North was. Um, and you're just kind of there. Like, all right, well, I hope they, I hope they're good. Right. Yeah. I'm sure they're good. They got this, right? They got this. Right. Yeah, that is a strange feeling because you have all this training and you 
you feel like you're ready to jump into it, but you have no responsibilities yet. Your unit is not there to do anything. You don't even have someone that you're supposed to be shadowing yet because we weren't at our final destination. And like, you know, to be clear, if the base is being overrun, it doesn't matter if it's your first day or your 500th day, or that's a bad example, but first day or last day, like if, if, if it's an immediate issue, everybody gets involved. If there were casualties, everybody would have, would have been involved to, to help in some way. But this is one of those where, especially along Highway 1, there were a lot of what we came to learn, didn't know it on the first morning, but a lot of the sporadic contact, which is just harassing small arms fire, um, maybe a recoilless rifle would be fired, maybe an RPG, but it wasn't a sustained fight. It wasn't anything serious, as weird as that sounds. So for the most part, you just had to keep doing your job because there were other people that could, that were more than capable of handling that kind of weird. You almost think like gunfire, everybody needs to turn and, and pay attention to that thing, but it's really not how it plays out. Yeah. Yeah. And the other thing to note is that, um, in this, uh, part of Afghanistan and the Western Kandahar district in Zari, it's, it's like a farmland. So it's, it's very flat terrain, uh, to the North is some desert and some mountains in the distance. And then to the South, uh, there's a lot of, a lot of farms and villages. And then further South is, uh, an, an un, uninhabitable desert. Uh, so it's, it's flat. So, so we're not as concerned about like getting overrun because you would see if there were hordes of Taliban looking to overrun Hazim Adad, you would see them from a mile away and they wouldn't stand a chance. So it's, yeah, it's like you said, it's just pot shots and it's, it was nothing that, uh, that we needed to be on, you know, ready to defend the wall at all times kind of situation. How long until you guys went out to Terminator? It was just a couple of days. Um, yeah, I know we were not at Housing Madad very long. Uh, I don't think we even were, were given like uh, a uh, tent to set up our base of operations. And it was interesting. We uh, Because we were replacing a striker company uh, and, you know, we were not, we didn't have any strikers. So no one in my unit was used to those. Um, and they, they were kind of a novelty, to be honest. Uh, but our, the striker company that lived at Terminator came and picked us up, essentially. So oh, we, okay. Yeah, we, we're, the, the 20 of us or so that I was with, we crammed into their strikers and we drove out there to Terminator. And I remember it was, it was a pretty long drive and we were crammed in there. There's no windows in a striker, so... I didn't really get to see very much, um, but I just remember being crammed in there and it was a very bumpy ride, uh, which looking back there, they probably intentionally drove through like a bumpy area just to mess with us as the, as the new guys. Uh, yeah, it was, they drove us in strikers all the way to Terminator. And then that's where we were able to kind of to start taking over our, our roles and to meet the people that we were replacing. So that was, that's where it finally was, was real. And we were, we were working. How far away was Terminator? I'm looking at a map now. It was 15 miles sound about right. Yeah. Yeah. About 15 miles, which, which in a striker and a patrol, when you're worried about IEDs and smaller fire, it takes a while to move 15 miles. It, it's not like a quick trip to the store, you know? Well, what's crazy is this battle space was so contested and challenging to move around that I never saw Terminator. You never saw my outposts um, other than, other right. than the, the main base there. I have no idea what life was like out there. 15 miles, like you may as well have been in Indiana. Um, right. and, and, you know, I'm going to go start doing some scouting for hunting next week. And there's a couple hunting areas that I'm going that are 15, 20 miles. And I feel like I'm you know, the luckiest man alive because I only have to drive 15 miles to go do some hunting. Like I'm going to do that quickly, you know, but dude, yeah, you were on the edge of earth, edge of the earth out there. It's weird. Yeah. Yeah, it absolutely was. And that, so that was kind of near highway one, but it was 
yeah, a couple of miles south of the highway and it was kind of dead space. Um, and then there was, there was a, a few uh, compounds or collections of houses to the south of Terminator. Uh, and then it was the Argandav River. So it was kind of the, the edge of the, um, what do they call it? The, the Horn of Panjway. Uh, yeah. so, so there's like the, the horn is uh, to the south is the, the river. And then it's mostly made up of like the farmlands in the Horn of Panjway. And this was kind of like the, the tip of that. We were jealous of you guys. <laughs> Why do you say that? Well, we were jealous of everybody. Um, so dog company, I think we talked about it last time, changed out commander, first sergeant, XO. So like the three leadership positions in the company changed out after I got there and I got there like a month and a half before we deployed. So it was brand new leadership. Um, the company hadn't done well at JRTC. Um, J yeah, I, I always like I'm on the verge of saying JROTC, but anyways, JRTC down in uh, Louisiana, they didn't do well, um, at least compared to the rest of the battalion and dog company was assigned tower guard at housing Madad, which how has he ended up getting in contact like every single day, like multiple times yeah. every day, but yeah, for, for a tower guard assignment, that was probably the best one you could have. Cause most people that end up on tower guard assignments, it, it's a pretty boring life. And some people do that for entire deployments. So yeah, tower guard at house Madad in the summer of 2010 was actually, I'm sure that was fairly exciting. Yeah. I mean, we had a lot of guys that, that got to, um, it's a good way to say this experience combat um, gently, right? Mm -hmm. Relatively protected, but there's still rounds flying by. They get to return fire while they're relatively protected. We never had anybody hit um, too awful bad in a tower. I think we had a concussion or maybe a busted eardrum from our coilless round, but um, kind of a, an introduction to combat, which paid off well later, but, we didn't see it that way. We saw it as I'm, I'm looking at the map, so I'm not going off memory here, but attack company goes out to Gundigar out in the middle of Indian country. Bravo company goes out to Lakakel again, middle of Indian country charger company. Again, may as well be in a different country. They're so far out there on their own um, battling the Taliban. And here we are watching them build up this big talk. And there's all these Afghan soldiers around that we, didn't really want to be spending time with, which no option. You have to, and then we needed to, but yeah, man, we were jealous of the other companies. Yeah. I think we, we were at Terminator and, and to kind of go off of what you were saying earlier about your company. So at that same JRTC rotation, my company, I think was declared the best one. And again, I wasn't a part of it. So I'm, I'm just, this is what I understand. Uh, and I know we did have a really solid leadership team. Um, so I think they performed the best at JRTC or at least in the top. So that's why they were sent on what was considered the initial uh, potentially most dangerous spot. Uh, at least we're maybe furthest from the battalion. So most independent. So kind of where you needed the experienced leadership team out there. Uh, so yeah, it was, it was exciting. And, and we felt like we were, you know, the tip of the spear, we were, uh, kind of, you always want to be put in the most crucial spot. So it, it's, it's interesting how all units try to try to, you always remember that you're the most important mission in the whole army you know, cause that's kind of what you're told and that's what you want to feel like is that what I'm doing is the most important. Um, so I know we felt really cool because we were the ones furthest from the rest of the battalion and we we're the first ones to go out on our own. Uh, yeah, yeah. Terminator was, it was an interesting place. It was kind of out in the middle of nowhere, uh, like I had described. And there was a unit there that was, that was stretched too thin. Um, but me as a fire support officer, I immediately was introduced to their fire support officer. 
And one of the first things he did was he, he introduced me to um, all the Afghan interpreters. So we talked about that uh, uh, earlier. Yeah. But uh, th that was his job. So then that becomes my job is he managed all the interpreters. And I remember him uh, bringing me into their tent. They had all of them crammed into this little uh, old fashioned tent thing. And there were just like a bunch of, I don't know, 20 year old kids, all these, all these interpreters are probably younger than that, to be honest. Um, but they're just having a blast and they like to, they like to, uh, uh, kind of jabber back and forth with, uh, the guy that I was replacing. And I already, I honestly forget his name. Uh, I only knew him for a week. Uh, but, but yeah, I remember he, he would just go in there and just like yell at them and kind of they'd go back and forth and he would give them an assignment and they'd all kind of act like they uh, hate him. And it was, it was an interesting relationship, but it was kind of, it was fun. It was positive. Uh, but that's kind of what they had. And then I'm not that kind of person. I don't have that kind of personality to be, you know, going back and forth with people that are, that I'm supposed to be in charge of. Uh, so it was, it was a lot different uh, for them that me managing them uh, as opposed to this other guy. You, so when I wrote home, at this point, we were really only writing letters, um, free mail coming out of Afghanistan, but getting to a place to use a computer or phone was kind of a challenge there at the start. But it was easy for me to keep everybody at home comforted because I would say things like, we're on the biggest base here and, and we're not going out. We're on tower guard what did you tell lauren yeah um it's interesting because you're told hey you got you can't tell what we're doing you can't tell your location so i remember being super cryptic and i would have to say hey yeah we're going up to this other base and uh it's you know i i tried to imply that it's not the safest but i'll you know we're going to be okay i'm with a good team and all this stuff but I'm, i might not be able to call you very often i don't know what kind of connection we'll have out there um and and she understood that and you know it, she always had the understanding of no news is good news so when i wouldn't be able to call her for a few days she would just assume that things are okay but i know it was hard on her yeah that's a line it's an interesting one um because you're talking about it, like everybody wants to be the tip of the spear. Everybody wants to go to the, the place they're needed most. But um, I think nine times out of 10, the family members don't want the person uh, going to be the tip of the spear right. and the most dangerous, but, <laughs> but like, you're proud of it. And like, if I were you, I'd been bragging about that. Like, yeah, we're going out middle of nowhere we're by ourselves. We're the furthest away from everybody, but that also sounds really, really bad. So it's interesting. I think everybody, every, I think every single relationship and like, whether it's spouse or, or kids or parents, whatever, I think everyone's probably handled that a little differently. Yeah. And then I remember a couple of days after we were there, uh, we were still in the right seat, left seat um, transition. And the, uh, the host company sent out a patrol and their strikers and they went south uh, of Terminator to this village. It was like Southeast of Terminator and they got into contact. So as the fire support officer, I was, I was in the, uh, the talk, the little command post, which is just like a plywood building with radios and maps in it. Um, and so, so they're calling in, they're in a firefight this is you know, a very experienced unit. They were used to it. It was no news or it, it wasn't like a big deal to them. Um, and then I think one of their strikers either hit an ID or got hit by like a recoilless round. So they were stuck. So th that became a concerning situation. Because um, now suddenly they were not sure if they could bring this, this vehicle back and they were kind of stuck out there in a fight. Uh, so then it was really eye-opening to me to kind of watch how they handled it. And, and they were, they were great about it. Uh, you know, they were able to 
essentially limped the striker back to the uh, base, but they had they had some close calls. Uh, and I remember just seeing those guys come back, and they were they were so weathered, and they were so uh, you know their uniforms are just tattered, and they're you know you could tell they were they were over it, but they were also uh, you know experienced soldiers that have been fighting this fight for at this point it had probably been 11 months for them uh and you just think like wow that that uh i hope that i'm able to be as you know effective as they are and i hope that i'm going to be able to to learn to fight like they are but they are they look pretty rough dude i remember that too i'd forgotten about that um holy cow yeah you know, looking back between two deployments, however many units we switched with and worked with and whatever, I don't think I ever saw a unit that looked, and this isn't a knock on them. I, I just mean they, to your point, their uniforms were in a mess. They looked beat down. Um, they did. Yeah. yeah, wow. So that unit was from uh, second, second Infantry Division. This was the deployment, I believe, WAG's, where the kill team stuff happened. Yeah. With the cutting the fingers off, I think. Was that, that wasn't the guys you replaced. It was a little further West. Yeah, it was, yeah, it was same unit, I think, but it was not the same guys that I was with. They weren't at that same base. I haven't seen that movie now. I think it came out a little while ago, but I remember hearing about that when we first got there and the way it was pitched was, actually, I don't remember the whole, the whole story, but I, I remember having in my mind that like they were stacking Taliban bodies in the side of the road and hanging signs. You know, this is what happens when you shoot at American forces, or this is what happens to the douchemon to the enemy. Um, I mean, it was like, oh my god, that's wild west. Yeah, yeah, and I think they were they were spread thin. They were kind of each platoon was kind of on their own to. to make their own decisions and they didn't have much oversight i think in some cases so yeah it those uh those feelings are real when when you start losing people or get have people having people get hurt uh it can it can un unveil a very ugly side of you so i mean i'm not i'm not totally surprised that you know some of those things were happening and they were you know making signs like that and trying to essentially use some of the Taliban tactics on the Taliban. I mean, it's it's not the right answer. It's not the American way, but it's, uh, in my opinion, it's understandable that it can happen. So when we got to Housie, we brought an 800 person battalion to take over the battle space from a company. And the company is about, you know, a hundred is usually a good number for the back of your mind. So eight times the number of soldiers. So the, the base was being built out. But when we started to transition with the unit there, um, we went into their command post, which is an old building. I think the Canadians built it back uh, in 2007 mm-hmm. or something. And along the wall, they had pictures of the, the fallen soldiers in their company. I don't remember how many it was, but I remember thinking that it, I remember being surprised that it was just a company. Like it was that number, whether it was five, six, seven, eight or something, like it was enough to where there's a lot of battalions that don't lose that many people in the deployment and they'd be giving us a rundown of, of what to look for and what to think about. And they kept coming back to IEDs and you, know, you got to be careful because they're on the roads and they're on the trails and they're next to the trails and they're next to the roads and they're in the fields and they're in doorways and they're in hallways and they're on rooftops. And it got to the point where it was almost comical and, and we were, but they were dead serious. And I remember our, our guys were kind of pushing them like, great. And how many patrols do you go on? And how often do you go here? And, and the answer is kind of like, we don't go there and yeah. we don't have the firepower to go to this area. And our guys were not to their faces, but behind their backs, like some, you know, how about these bums not leaving the wire? And uh, I remember our company commander kind of coming down on some of us and saying, I don't think you understand. Um, they've taken a beating. They've been asked to do something that they probably couldn't do. They've lost a lot of guys, had even more wounded. Um, it's death out there. Who can blame them? Yeah. 
yeah and it's you know if you if you can't connect a uh, an actual outcome that you need to do a patrol and you you have to you know accomplish this task that will save american lives or will win the war if you can't connect something like that to what you're doing and you're getting killed and and it's and you don't you know there, there's no good reason for it then it's, it's hard to make that decision to go outside the wire and put yourselves at risk and put your people at risk especially after you start realizing what that risk is then it's yeah it's after been being through it you know i i, I think i felt the same way I, I thought that the unit that we were replacing was was a bunch of you know not the best unit i guess i'll say um which I think is normal. I think I think every unit thinks yeah. that about the unit that you're replacing. Um, but uh, yeah, looking back, like you said, they had been through uh, the ringer and they were just trying to survive and get home, which is, that's what you're going to do. In our 12 months there, I went from that, this, you know, the new second lieutenant that doesn't know anything, thinking that the unit they're replacing is garbage, right? Um, right. So I, w- what the heck do I know? But yeah. Um, went from, they're not doing it right. Just wait till we get in here. By the time we left 12 months later, I felt bad for those guys. They were, I mean, it was, it was illegal is too strong of a word, but they shouldn't have been there in that size. That, that was that they're lucky that more people didn't get killed. It's crazy. Yeah. Cause the Zari district is the heartland of the Taliban. So there's, there's some bad people in that general area. And I think that whenever they tried to go on patrols or, you know, win hearts and minds, they were, uh, they were met with some serious resistance and it's, it's in their home turf, you know, the Taliban's home turf. So it's, it's a, a tough spot to be in for a unit that's spread too thin. So kind of wrapping up here, we'll, we'll try to stop it after the first few months being there. But um, I got to mention, we, we started living in a place we called the dog pound, dog company, dog pound. It was essentially a, uh, um, a bunker. It was just concrete blocks, those tea barriers or whatever. It was pretty, pretty gross. All things considered, it was um, even for how we'd live the rest of the deployment. This place was pretty bad. Um, we, there were, they'd somehow managed to put like plywood between some of the concrete to where you could, there weren't mattresses, it was just pieces of wood and you would sleep on top of that. But the mice were so bad that we'd get care packages and have some sort of food in there. And you had to put your food in ammo boxes because the mice would chew through, you could have food wrapped up like a pack of beef jerky unopened inside of a box. And you'd wake up in the morning to the mouse having chewed through the box into the beef jerky and taking just a, just, just a nibble or two. But when you look at that thing, ready to open it up for breakfast, you're like, oh, God, dang it. Um, so they gave us these. And, and regularly, I'd wake up in the middle of the night because a mouse would bump me in one place or another. Um, I don't think I'm not man enough to ever get used to that. <laughs> but uh, I, God, I remember the dog pound now. We had a, a chest freezer that would freeze water bottles solid. And it got so hot in the dog pound that I would take two frozen water bottles in there, like blocks of ice, take two of those in there and wake up throughout the night and drink my warm water. Um, because it might be a little less than the hot water that I took in there if it wasn't frozen to begin with. It was, oh, but then they gave us mouse. So to deal with the mice, they gave us two different things. They gave us rat traps. You know, they're like six inches. You know what I'm talking about? Like six inches long. Yeah. <laughs> but these were mice. They were, they were small mice. So it did nothing. Um, like I think the mice could sit on top of it and just eat the food. No problem. And right. then they gave us those sticky the glue pads. Mm-hmm. So we laid those things out all across the dog pound. This is headquarters company in there. And we were not headquarters company, um, headquarters platoon. So there were, I don't know, a dozen of us or something. And everybody had these glue traps all over the place, but, but, but those, those just catch the mice. And then they dragged those things all across the dog pound squealing all night. They didn't kill them. 
So instead of just like quietly knowing there's mice everywhere, they were just squealing all night, getting trapped in every direction and, and yelping until somebody killed them. So that was. Oh, yeah. The, uh, I remember the mice too. We didn't have it as bad as you guys in that, in that dog pound situation because you guys were essentially living in a bunker for a few months. Um, yeah, I, I do specifically recall uh, there was some downtime, I think, and a couple of soldiers found a mouse on one of those sticky pads and uh, you, you put soldiers in that situation. If you get the wrong type of people involved, then they can be cruel to a mouse. Uh, so it, it's not, it's not, uh, it's not good to, to uh, have 20 year old kids with mice that are stuck to a piece of paper and they can just do whatever they want with it. And no cell phones and no internet. So you can't get distracted. Right. We had, um, I got two more, two more there. There's uh, on the mice, our supply sergeant was sleeping in a container because he's a supply sergeant and always knew how to get things um, like right. a little bit better. Right. So he's sleeping on the top bunk in a container and we were, he had a sleeping bag because he had air conditioning. He was in a sleeping bag and he woke up to a mouse on his chest and he freaked out and slapped the thing and it went straight down into his sleeping bag. So then he started, <laughs> started squirming around <laughs> on the top bunk <laughs> to where he fell off his side, came in all battered up and had to explain how he fell out of the top bunk because he knocked a, a mouse into his sleeping bag in the middle of the night. Like, well, yeah. yeah. That, that was like six feet up, man. That wasn't a small, you know. Right. We had, from, from later in the deployment, we, we had a, uh, a, uh, a bunch of guys in a tent and we had cats, stray cats. And uh, one guy woke up, <laughs> he said he had a cat on his chest. So he, he freaks out and he chucks the cat. So, so there's a, a wild cat flying through this tent. And, you know, it has full claws. It's not like they're declawed stray cats. Yeah, it's a wild so this, animal. It's a wild animal. And he's flying around and he, he claws another guy who's sleeping just right across the face. He just rakes his face and then lands on the ground and runs away. So this, this poor other guy wakes up just to getting a claw to the face and <laughs> he had scars for a while. Oh man, that was funny. God, we had the, I thought was a benefit to the dog pound because it was right next to a couple of Porta Johns so I could quickly get to the bathroom. But uh, one of the memories that seared in, I don't know if this counts as memory. I'll let you come up with a better word for this, Wags. They would, the, the, truck that would suck all the good stuff out of the port of john would come early in the morning like i think i was getting up at like 6 30 and the truck would get there at like 6 or 6 15 it was like right before i was always set to get up and it wasn't the sound that would wake me up it was the smell i remember yeah. waking up so many mornings because of the smell and like I don't think I've ever had that happen in my life, except for that, you know, month or two at Housing Madad, where, yeah, like it chokes you strangely. Like it's that my room was the first one in. You walked in, you took a left, I was right there. I was 10 feet from the Port of Johns with like oh, one God. concrete wall between us. And when they turned that sucker on in the morning, I mean, I can smell it a little bit now. It's well, because that was, there was like a row of, I don't know, 50 Porta Johns. Uh, so it was for a lot of people. So you were in a really unfortunate location there. Well, that this, was the benefit of, of smaller posts is we'd have like three Porta Johns for the whole place, but there's just so much fewer people that it wasn't a big deal. There's a downside to having fewer Porta Johns, but that might be a uh, story for later. <laughs> yeah. 
probably a good time to wrap it up. Yeah. Well, anything else, man, we'll try to pick up next time around September timeframe. There's a big operation. So anybody coming back for the next episode, we'll, we'll start talking about Dragon Strike, uh, big operation in Southern Afghanistan, 2010. Um, a couple of things leading up to it. Uh, I know John is doing some other things prior to that kind of shape in the operation, but I think we'll probably get into some of the more normal uh, war stories when it comes to fights and patrols and airstrikes and all that stuff. But um, yeah, anything you want to hit on here, John? First couple months before we before we call tonight. No, I mean it's it's interesting because I think there's a lot of uh, every time you replace a unit, like we said, you judge that unit, and they're judging you. Um, so we had it took a it took a while to get through that stage, and then like you said, the, the months right after when we were in charge, there was uh, yeah a lot of memorable experiences. So yeah, I'm excited to talk about it. All right. Well, we'll dive into that next time. Talk soon, John. Appreciate you being on, man. Thanks. Hey, this is Preston Stewart with Medal of Honor Stories. Thank you very much for listening. I, I really hope you enjoyed. And if you did, you know, it'd mean an awful lot if you would leave a review or leave a rating on whatever platform it is uh, that you listen to this podcast. Helps others to find it. But thanks again. Hope you enjoyed. We'll see you next time.